so good to see all of you. Um, I know a few faces. That is awesome. I don't know lots of faces. That is awesome because it means that uh, there is adventure ahead to um, get to know bits and pieces of one another as the opportunity affords. It's so good to be here. I always love coming to this campus because as far as Mosaic is concerned, this campus has a very special place in our heart, a unique place in our heart, because it ties to part of why we birthed Mosaic here in Orlando, because we believe that the world of Disney is a world-shaping uh, space, and we believe that as the gospel uh, kind of penetrates the hearts of men and women like you, and you uh, bring that gospel to bear through the beautiful ways that you have opportunity in the spaces in which you work, that that will shape and change Disney. And then Disney will shape and change the things of the world in a way that will reflect the gospel. It's a big dream, but it starts right here in this room with you all. And that's why we're here. That's why we come, and that's why I love coming here. So uh, I can't wait to see what God continues to do uh, through each and every one of you in your break rooms and your spaces and your standing in the hot sun and loving people well, not just because you work for Disney, but because you love Jesus. And that's a pretty awesome thing. So, uh, so, so, so good to be here. As Danny just shared with you guys, um, I have had the unique opportunity over the last five months to take some time to step away from spending a great deal of my time working on vocational ministry, uh, leading church and, and preaching and teaching and engaging with people's lives, and to divert that time into really going with the Spirit of God and, and working on the inner things. Uh, to go to the Spirit of God and say, can you do a work to reveal to me what I do not know that I do not know, what I do not see in myself and of myself. And uh, it has been an incredible journey, not an easy one, uh, not always beautiful, sometimes incredibly brutal, um, but a journey that has brought about just extraordinary things and clarities and newness. And so I, I, I come into this space like I did this morning. So this morning was the first time in five months since Easter that I walked back into the church that I call home, the place that is my, uh, my little community and family. And, and, and when you walk back into a place like that and you've been gone for five months and so much has happened in you, it's very difficult to figure out what on earth you're supposed to bring to the table. Uh, it's like I've got worlds inside of me and, and I've, you know, they give me 30 minutes and they're like, yay, 30 minutes. I'm like, I need like 30 days uh, to be able to even begin to, to scratch the surface of what God has done and what God has shown me and, 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 and what, it, what it's been like. And so you sort of start asking the question, like, what do you bring? Have you, have you guys ever traveled somewhere or, or been on some kind of phenomenal retreat? And then you come back to the people that didn't go and they're like, what was it like? And you're like, where do I begin? Like, what do I even say? Like, if you've gone to like Rome or Israel or Paris or you've gone to, and, and you come back and they're like, tell me about it. What did you love? And you're like, everything. Um, and so I, I feel a, a bit like that. And so I've been asking God, like, what, what is it you want me to 
to bring to the table. Started asking a few weeks ago as this date started forming. And it's been incredible because in that journey, it kind of caused me to have to examine sort of the totality of all that God has done and ask God, what of all this matters the most? What of all this is the central reality that umbrellas all the other amazing and crazy things I've learned? And it turns out uh, God made it extremely clear what that thing was, what that one discovery was that was bigger and more profound than all the others combined. And God said, bring that to the table because that's what matters most. That's almost all that matters actually. So tonight, that's what I'm going to share with you is what the one thing is that is above all the others. And to do that adequately, I have to kind of take you on a little bit of a journey before I just say, here it is. This is how it personally affected me. I've got to kind of take you through a little bit of a ride on the things I've discovered along the way, some recent, some earlier in the, in the, in the journey that have kind of crystallized for me the beauty of what this is. So I was um, on my way to New York this last week, uh, was going to a gathering there with some other pastors to kind of think through and talk through some stuff together. And um, I was on the plane and we landed in New York and we got there a little early, which was great, except that because we got there a little early, the gate wasn't ready, which wasn't great. Um, and so our little bit of early time turned out to be spent on the tarmac uh, in the airplane. Just 20, 25 minutes, no big deal. But once we got on the tarmac and the plane came to a stop, two rows in front of me, uh, there was uh, a, little, uh, a mom with a little baby. The baby was probably, I would guess, about 18 months old because it wasn't in that toddler stage yet, uh, but it was old enough that she could interact uh, very, very profoundly and beautifully. And so the mom took the baby out of the giant strappings that you have to put children in on an airplane uh, because you don't want to sit for 20 minutes with the baby stuck in, in that. And the baby went onto mom's shoulder. So now there are two rows in front of me uh, and there's, there's this baby. And so the baby is facing me. And the baby's not above the seat. It's kind of below the seat. But between the seats, there's a little crack that you can see through on an airplane. And this little baby looks through the crack with a smile and a single eye, and we make eye contact. And I knew in that moment that I had about three and a half seconds to either convince this child that I was dangerous and evil and scary, or to convince this child that we had some time to play. Now, I come with a disadvantage because I am dangerous and big and scary looking. And so for that little child, they're like, oh, yep, <laughs> check, don't talk to this dude. And so I've got two and a half seconds now because uh, the first second is he's scary uh, to kind of catch up. And, and whenever I'm in those spaces, I, I always think of a scene in a movie that I love so very much. There's a movie called Avatar, which I'm sure some of you have seen. Not all of you may have. But in the movie Avatar, there are two characters in the movie um, it's kind of about this planet um, that's somewhere else. And of course, you guys know some of it because it plays into your little world here. Um, and, and so, you know, when I'm speaking in the mornings, I've got to be like, maybe you haven't seen it, but I doubt there's anyone here that hasn't. Um, and and as, you, as you, I'm sure know, uh, in that beautiful space of the world of, of, of Pandora, um, when there's the first encounter of the human that's now in the other body, um, they have this moment of greeting and she says to him, I see you. 
And then he's like, yeah, I see you too. And she's like, no, no, you don't understand. Like, this is our greeting. And, and it's this way of saying, I see you now. I'm, I'm interested in you. I'm not just saying hi in passing. We are having a moment of pause to see each other. And it is sort of this ongoing hope. I want to not just see you now, but I want to keep seeing you and see you more. And so and I'm, when I'm in those moments with small children, I, I always have this deep desire to want to kind of reach out and say, I see you. Like, I see you. Because I have found when a child that is that young feels that you see them, that suddenly there is a safety that happens there and you can begin to play. When I left the plane and I got to the gathering I was at, we were talking about what it would look like as a church, churches, the American church, to engage in carrying Jesus into the world when the world is such a mess and we are such a mess as Christ followers. So it's a little messy. We're not doing great and they're not doing great. And how, how, what, what do we do with this space? And um, so there was this video that they showed where they went into the streets of New York, LA and Portland and they interviewed a bunch of just people on the street and asked some questions just for us to kind of get a glimpse into where people are at. And one of the questions they asked was this, um, when have you felt most alone? What a question. When have you felt most alone? And answer after answer, I'm watching on this video, young and old, couples and individuals, answer after answer, wasn't, well, when I am alone. In fact, every single one of them said, when I am in a crowd and I am not known, not heard, not understood. They use different words, but they all said the same thing. When I'm in a crowd and no one talks to me. And what they were saying was, when I'm around humans and they don't see me, I feel most alone. See, what I've come to realize more and more in my life journey is that we human beings have been made by a creator with a, a deep need to be seen fully, to be seen completely, and to be loved when we are seen. But love itself is actually the seeing fully and the knowing fully. And so it begins to become incredible that we would have a creator that would create us with a deep need, the deepest human need in my estimation, of being seen. You cannot fill out the words in known, loved, understood. It's all, all the same space to be seen. Only so that he can fully meet that need in us so that we would know how deeply he loves us by his seeing us fully, because he makes us to need to be seen. What a crazy thing. And so on this trip between the baby and the video, it dawned on me again how much I, how much you want to be, need to be seen. And then in my journey, 
something else became incredibly apparent. I've never seen this before. I've known this, but I've never seen this before. That God actually shows this to us throughout the entirety of scripture, but he starts showing it to us in the very beginning of our human story, in the book of Genesis. So God's names, what we call God, is a journey of humans encountering him and either asking him a question, what should we call you? Or having an experience of him and then giving him a name because he did something. So you'll see all the names you know of God, they kind of were born throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament in these two spaces, either asking or experiencing. So for example, when Moses was talking to God and he's like, what should should we call you? And he's like, you can call me I am. Like, oh, okay, great. Other times it was an experience of healing or an experience of provision. And then you would find somebody saying, we're going to call you Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals, or Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. And there was all these different names. So every time there's a name of God, it is because a human encountered God and asked or experienced. You with me? One of the earliest names given to God happens in the early parts of Genesis. So there's the story that unfolds where God calls Abraham out with his wife, Sarah, and he's beginning the work of of, of creating a people that he will call his own so that through this people, the whole world would know him. And he makes some promises to Abraham and he says to Abraham, "Um, I am going to create nations through you, a nation of people that through whom all the nations will be blessed. The trouble is that Abraham's old and Sarah's old. It's not like a judgment. It's just a fact. They were just very old. And so they were way past the childbearing years. And so Abraham and Sarah are like, okay, God promised that there's going to be this nation that's going to bless nations, but we can't have kids. So what does this mean? And instead of trusting God fully with that promise, they came up with a scheme, a plan. And they were like, why don't you take Hagar, who's our uh, maidservant, and why don't you uh, hang out with her? And then a child will be conceived. And, and then that's how God will do it. And so Abraham does that. And, and Hagar uh, conceives, a child is conceived in Hagar's womb. And so we now have this weird triangle that's happened. And so Sarah gets super jealous because now she's like, oh my gosh. And I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? And so it gets really ugly in the home. And so Hagar leaves, she runs away. And in Genesis chapter 16, this story unfolds. Listen to this, it's so crazy. Hagar has run away, and in Genesis 16, 7, it says, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. Now, whenever the Old Testament says the angel of the Lord, it could be the messenger from God, but more often than not, and you'll see in this case it was, uh, it is actually a way of saying God showed up on planet Earth to encounter a human. And God, the angel of the Lord, said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? Now, what you're going to encounter with me over the next few minutes is multiple occasions in which God on the planet encounters a human and then asks a really stupid question. Okay? And this is one of them. This is a really stupid question. And you're like, why is it stupid? Because, let's think about this for a second. This, this encounter, God says to this random person, hi, who? Hagar. So does he know who it is? 
Yes. And he says, servant of Sarah. So does he know where she's from? So there's no confusion here that God knows exactly who he's dealing with and exactly where she's from. And what's his next thing? So where are you from? And where are you going? So I'm like, isn't that beautiful? How the scripture leaves us no doubt. It's like, oh, I know. I don't have to guess whether God knew because he already said it. Hagar, Sarah's servant. Where are you coming from and where are you going? And I think to myself, God, what are, you, what are you doing? You know exactly where she's coming from and you know exactly where she's going. And so she shares, well, you know, this thing happened and I'm running away. And then the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. So now, I'm, now, now you know, it's even worse because I'm like, wow. So I'm like, where are you going? I'm running away because it's terrible. Uh, go back. But then he does something. He says, because as you go back, I want you to know something. I am going to bless you. I am going to be with you. I'm going to make a story out of your story. And it is going to be a big story and a beautiful story. And you need to trust me. I know it's hard, but go back because I am with you. And he says it through this incredible blessing. And then Hagar says this in verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. That's how we know it was God, because she's giving a name to God now, the angel of the Lord. She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. Isn't that beautiful? Think about this. As we encounter our human journey, you will begin to realize, as I do, that our need to be seen is perhaps the greatest, most deep human need we have, to be seen fully. And in the very early parts of Genesis, the first name we truly encounter that a human gives to God out of an experience is this. You are the God that sees. Do you see how God is telling us? You need to be seen, you know it. Guess what I do very well? I see you. So Jesus gets on the planet and he's hanging out after he's grown up and he's doing ministry and he begins to have encounters with people on the planet. And as I've started studying these encounters more deeply, looking at the details that happen in them, I have found something unbelievable, something beautiful and extraordinary, something that I knew was there, but I have missed sometimes. In each of these encounters that Jesus has, we see a similar thing happen to what happened with Hagar, a question either before or after an event with the person that seems initially silly. But then we begin to realize that Jesus is up to something like God was with Hagar. I'm not asking you because I don't know. I'm asking you because we need to have a moment together. One of the encounters that began this journey for me was found in Mark chapter 5. You're welcome to turn with me as we jump through these. We're going to go fast and I'm going to tell stories fast. Um, but I will give you the reference each time. So in Mark chapter 5, uh, there is a woman and she has been suffering a long time in her life. She's been bleeding. And the scriptures tells us that she's been bleeding because the scriptures is trying to make a point that it's not just a physical suffering, but that in the, in the context of her culture, bleeding was considered something unclean. So bleeding is going to separate you out of community for the period that you are bleeding in. And so she's been bleeding for a long time. And she's tried everything to make this stop. So she is physically suffering, but we know by the very nature of what the Bible tells us was happening to her, which it didn't have to tell us. It could have just said she's sick. 
that she has also been relationally suffering and emotionally suffering. And she comes into a crowd because she hears that Jesus is there and she knows that she's heard things about his power. And so in the story, it, is, it, it says to us that she, she moved her way through the crowd, which by the way, would have been an extraordinarily fearful thing to do because if anyone recognized who she was, what would they immediately do? They would shame her and they would say, get out, you can't be around us, you're unclean. So she's moving her way through the crowd as quickly as she can to get to Jesus and all she wants to do is to touch his, his clothing because she knows, it says it, She had told herself that if she could just touch the hem of his garment, that she would be healed. So the story tells us she gets there and she touches it and it says instantly her bleeding stopped and she felt her body change and she was healed. And as soon as she was healed, she let go of the coat and she moved back into the crowd. So when was she healed? The instant she touched his coat, she's healed. That's what the Bible says. Jesus stops the entire crowd. It's like, whoa, hold up, everybody, hold up. And the disciples are like, what are, you, what are you doing? We're going that way. There's lots of people. And this is what he asks. Who touched me? Which is a crazy, stupid question. And the disciples know it. So this is actually one of their responses is, are you kidding? Like we're in a crowd. Thousands of people have touched you. And Jesus has to respond saying, no, 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 no. Now someone particularly came and touched and drew power out of me. Have you ever been in a crowd where someone's talking about an individual and you know it's you? Have you ever been there? If you haven't, when you get there, welcome to awkward and scary. It's super scary. And so you know it's you and they're talking about you, but it's still a crowd and you're like, no, please, it's not me. Stop, change the subject. And eventually you have no choice. And so Jesus actually says like, no, 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 no. Someone touched me and power left me and went to them. And I'm sure this woman was like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? I didn't realize I was stealing. Like that's what you, you get that feeling like she's in trouble now. And so she comes forward. She's like, I'm so, I'm so sorry it was me. And what we feel as a moment of reprimand, something incredible happens. She comes before Jesus and this is what the Bible says. It says he looked at her. And I always imagine these moments as Jesus quietly putting his hand on her cheek. And he says this, listen, this is the first word out of his mouth. Daughter, daughter. Does that sound like a reprimand to you? Daughter. And then he says, your faith, your faith has healed you, go and be healed. When was she healed? When she touched the coat. So he's not like, now. your faith has healed you. We always take these moments like, he's trying to make a theological point that if you believe enough, you get healed. It's like, no, 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 no. He's just saying, I see your faith. I see your fear. I see your courage. I see your suffering. I see your heart. I see you. You see, what I realize about Jesus is that he's never the guy, you'll watch, we'll go through a, quick, a bunch of these real quick. He's never the guy that walks past someone with need and just drops some coins in their little plate, just gives them a coat and moves on, hands them a meal. Because the need we have as humans isn't the things we initially come for. The need we have is for someone to sit down next to us and to see us. And Jesus will stop over and over again and he will say, I know that there's something you want that feels big to you but I know what you really need. So I'm gonna stop and I'm gonna look at you and I'm gonna see you. Listen, in Luke 7, there is a widow 
and she's walking through a town. Jesus is walking as well. And as he walks by, there's a procession and the widow's son has died. We find out because of the, the, the scriptures. And this widow has lost her husband. How do we know? Because she's called a widow. That's right. And, and now we find out that this is her only son. And in the context that we are in here, we realize that when a woman was married at this time, her husband was the provider for her life. If he died, either the husband's brother or one of her sons would provide for her. If they died, she would have nothing. And she would end up on the street having to count on people's charity. So this woman has not just lost her only son after losing her husband, but she's also realizing that the entirety of her life trajectory has gone to a place that is desperate now. And it says Jesus walked by and he saw her. You can go read it. He saw her and he had compassion. So he walks over to her and this is, this is what he says. I can just imagine him taking her. She's weeping and he says, you need not weep anymore. When you first hear that, you're like, are you, are you serious? Like this is your big like comfort? Stop crying, lady. But that's not what he's doing. He stops and he sees her and he says, I see you weeping, I see your pain, I see your suffering, I see your fears and your insecurities and your doubts. I see everything that you are worried about and I am going to make it okay. And then he turns and he says, young man, get up. And he raises her son from the dead. He could have raised the son from the dead without any of that moment, but he bothers to stop and talk with her first and say, I'm about to take your weeping away. There's a paralytic dude um, who hears that Jesus is in town. Uh, this is found in Mark chapter two. And some of his friends are with him and Jesus is teaching and there's a giant crowd and they can't get to Jesus. And so these guys make a plan. They get to the house where Jesus is. They climb up on the roof and they tear the roof apart to lower the guy from the roof. I mean, it's a little bummer for the host. But as the roof opens up, they lower this guy down. What is it this guy wants? This is not a, it's not a, trick, it's not a trick question. I'll, just, I'll help you out here. He can't walk. Like he can't walk. His legs don't work. So what does he want? He wants to walk. That's right. Makes sense, doesn't it? So he gets lowered down before Jesus. And you can go read about it. And Jesus looks at him. And this whole thing's happening. And everybody knows what this is about. And this is what Jesus says to him. Your sins are forgiven. I mean, it's super weird. Like we read the Bible, I'm like, oh, it's profound and beautiful. I'm like, no, no, it's just weird. Because we know what he wants. It's kind of that moment when I hear that and I'm like, if I were laying there, I might go, <clears throat> thank you. That's really nice of you. I'm super glad my sins are forgiven. That just, I'm sure it's going to feel great tomorrow. But um, just on the off chance that anything's confusing, my, my legs don't work. <laughs> so if by any chance the sin thing could apply to the leg thing, then we're good with the sin thing. See, because we always read this and we're like, your sins are forgiven. We're like, oh, so powerful. But you wouldn't feel that was powerful. Nor would I. Except that we don't know what is in the heart of this young man. See, in this cultural context, when something was wrong with you, you were blind or you couldn't walk, Everybody believed that it was because you'd done something wrong. Remember when the disciples were with Jesus at one point and they found the blind guy? And this was their question. So uh, is it his sin or his parents' sin that made him blind? And I can just imagine Jesus going, you humans are crazy. He didn't say that, but I can imagine him just going, oh my gosh. 
Because there was this idea that if somebody had something wrong with them, it was because there was sin involved somewhere. So I wonder how many times this guy had heard over the entirety of his life, oh my gosh, what'd you do wrong? Or heard the conversation as people passed. I wonder what, wonder what he did. How many times do you have to hear that you've done something bad and that's why you can't walk before you believe that there must be something you've done? Maybe you don't know. You are dark and sinful. What must it be like to have the one with power look at you and say, you are not dark and sinful because I will take your darkness and your sin and remove it from you. Because you are dark and sinful, but with me, you are safe. Your sins are forgiven. When I die, I'm gonna go find this guy. I'm telling you. And I'm gonna go ask him, once he said that, did you still wanna walk or did you, did you not care? And I'm gonna put money on the table right now that he's gonna say, Psh, the walking thing didn't matter after that moment. Because Jesus was not about just giving us what we wanted externally. He was about meeting the deepest human need we had. To say, I see you. The woman at the well. Here's another strange question. She's a Samaritan woman. She's drawing water from a well. Jesus happens to be at the well. I'm always like, yeah, whatever. You planned that before the beginning of time. So let's just face it, all right? And he's kind of sitting there like, oh, look, we're bumping into each other and all my disciples are gone. What a coincidence. And then she's chatting with him and she's already awkward because she's like Jewish rabbi, Samaritan woman. The whole thing is not good and right. And then as they're chatting, Jesus says this. The one question this woman did not want to hear. He's like, why don't you go get your husband and we can keep chatting? You know why she didn't want to hear that? Because it turns out she's had five husbands. And the, the sixth dude that she's with isn't her husband. I mean, in that culture, that was really bad. Our culture is a little more, you know, willing. But even in our culture, that's pretty bad. I'm just saying, if you're like, you, this, is num this is number six? I mean, have, do you know anyone that's on number six? Like, I don't think I do. Like, that's, that's pretty crazy. And so she's, she's sitting here and he says, why don't you get your husband? And she's honest, but lying. She goes like this. Um, I, I, don't, I don't have a husband. And this is what Jesus does next. Listen, this is what he does next. He goes like this. Yep, I, I know you actually have had five and you're hanging out with number six who isn't even your husband. What does that feel like to you? Does that feel good to you? Did that feel good if you're that woman? What does that feel like? Does it feel like exposure? And like you got caught and this guy knows? And what's his motive? Like, ah, ha, ha, ha. You lied to me. And I know it. What happens when someone does that to you? What is your response to that? It is to move away as quickly as possible. It is shame and it is fear. It is embarrassment. It is it is everything about not being seen. That's not the kind of seeing you want people to have of you. And so you quickly draw the order and you make a beeline to get away from this person. You should go read what happens when that happens to her. It's in John chapter four. The second he says that, you know what she does? She moves toward him and says, you seem to be a prophet. And she begins to ask him questions about where they should worship. It makes no sense unless the tone and the eyes and the moment was not one that felt to her 
like a betrayal of her hiddenness, but something that in that exposure felt safe and beautiful. You see me, yet we are talking. What's up with this? I want to know more. Who are you? This is the seeing of God. When he exposes us, and we want to be afraid, but we can't because somehow something about him says, don't run. I see you and we're good. He does it again and again and again. He does it for Peter. He does it for Thomas. He does it for a blind man on the road to Jericho. He does it for a woman caught in adultery. He does it for Zacchaeus. And uh, 30 other times I found in scripture. Silly questions that aren't silly at all. It's Jesus's way of stopping and sitting beside someone and saying, I'm not gonna drop change in your little basket. I'm gonna sit with you and remind you that I see you. This journey that I've been on these last five months, you know, this sabbatical, its purpose was not primarily to go get some time off. Like go rest up, you know, I don't know, go to the beach, read a book. Play in your yard. The primary purpose of this was to give me the chance to really learn about myself. The part that I struggled so much with prior to the sabbatical, the part, frankly, we all struggle with, I have found, is not so much the knowledge of self, self-awareness. Though some of us don't have much of it, or a bit of it. Most of us aren't really super self-aware, nor was I. Like self-awareness, you're much more, you're much more, you think much more of your self-awareness than you are self-aware. Sorry, sorry. I just know, because it's kind of true for me. Um, and so, but what we are distinctly unaware of is how other people experience us. We think we know, because we watch them, but we don't really know, because they keep secrets from us. Because, the places they experience us well are easy to tell us, but the places they experience us hard, not so easy. It's not their fault. It's not my fault, not yours. It's just difficult. We humans, we're difficult. So in order to really discover how others experience you, you have to go do this crazy thing. You have to go ask them, like, how do you experience me? And it's usually like, oh, good. You're like, no, 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 I, thank you. It's beautiful. But like, no, for real. Like, where do you perhaps not? And then the journey begins. And then you're halfway in and you're like that woman at the well where you're like, just get me out of here. Because when that begins, you go into darker places in your life than you can imagine. Take it from someone who knows. And it's a weird journey because as you allow for that level of exposure and examination, you ask for it. And it comes your way through humans. And the spirit of God opens even more. And then it develops more. The people bringing that information to you, by definition, they have to bring hard things to your table for a while. And so it becomes difficult to believe that they're for you because it feels much more like it bites. So then the very people that you find your safety and become unsafe, not because they are unsafe, but because by nature, this journey feels kind of hard. And you wake up one day and you're utterly alone. 
So in the last five months, I have felt more alone at times than I have in the entirety of my last 47 years. It's a crazy space. And part of why I felt so alone is because I have walked into darker places in my soul than I knew existed. Have you ever watched those movies where people could read the minds of humans around them? I have a panic attack now when I see that because I'm like, if you could read my mind just as in the same way if I could read yours second by second, we would hate each other in about 30 seconds. And it's those spaces I was able to go. There's more, I'm sure, that I will find out in the years to come, but I found out some deep ones. And here's what Jesus did for me. I thought that to go into those places, it would work like this, kind of like with other humans. Jesus would take my hand and he would say, we're going to go on a little journey. We're going to go in your dark places and we're going to go see them. And then we'd walk into these rooms in my heart and my, and my mind and the, and the way my deficits and my dysfunctions, my sins and my fears, my insecurities and my hurts and my pains, things I'm very good at working around and as we walk into those rooms, Jesus would kind of go like this. <gasps> deep breaths, deep breaths. It's a big one. This little monster is crazy. And then he would kind of have that moment like, okay, this is dark, but I still love you, even though we just saw this. But it turns out it didn't work that way at all. I walked into these rooms kind of by myself. He didn't walk in with me. But when I walked into them, guess who was already there. Jesus. He was already there. He didn't walk in and discover it with me. Oh gosh, that's dark. Still love you. <laughs> it was more this way. Welcome, Renault. Deep breaths. I know it looks very dark to you. Because <laughs> it is. But I've been here since before you were born. And I have loved you yet. This is not a new thing for me. I see you how deeply? Totally deeply. How fully? Totally fully. I have seen you fully all the time. And there's darkness you haven't even yet discovered. You'll do that in like 13, 14 years. It's going to be hard. But that's okay because I'm already there. I see all of it. And I have loved you. The entire time. In my loneliest moments, God brought a few gifts to my table. This was one of them. It's a little book. It's a series of four. You can look at it online. Uh, this is one of them, and it's out of the Psalms. And I read this book to my children when they were little. My daughter's 21 now. So this book has been in my house for 21 years. And it was a book I read to my children as they were growing up. And God reminded me of this book just recently when I felt very alone. And he said, why don't you go find that book? Because it turns out you didn't buy it for your kids. <laughs> you bought it for you. And it's time you read it to yourself so I can read it to you. This is directly out of Psalm 139. And here's what it says. This has been a gift to me. And I give it now to you. Ready? Oh Lord, you see me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You even know what I'm thinking. Panic attack. 
Before I say a word, you already know it. Mm. Not just the good ones, the bad ones too. That's not in the book. I put that in. You know when I go outside or when I'm laying in my bed, you know everything about me. You protect me from all sides. You have placed your hands around me. Just thinking about this is so wonderful that it's too much for me to understand. So where can I hide from you? Look at a little picture. A little cat hiding in a tree. Question, where can I hide from God? Let's take a look. Maybe it tells us. <clears throat> Could I ever run away from you? If I went up into outer space... You are there. If I went to the bottom of the ocean, you, you are there too. If I could fly past the clouds to the other side of the sea to never, never land, I added that. Your hand would hold me safely. If I travel to the darkest parts of myself, you are there too. I added that. But then it does say this. If I say, surely I can hide in the dark, even the darkness would be as bright as daytime for you. You made every part of me. You put me together while I was inside my mommy's tummy. I praise you because I am wonderfully made. Your work is perfect. Before I was even born, you saw me. All of the days of my life you have planned for me and they were written in your book long ago. Your thoughts of me are so important to me. How many of them there must be if I tried to count them, there would be more than all the tiny grains of the sand by the sea. So when I wake up in the morning, I'm still with you. And now look what he says, the author of Psalm 139. So, Considering how deeply you see me and how safe I am with you, look at me, God. The question, look at me. Look inside my heart. See if I am sad or worried about anything. See if I have done bad things. And then show me how much you love me and how to love you forever and ever. He sees you. I don't fully see you. I can't. Some of you don't even know you. And even the ones I know, we are humans, so I can only see so much. And I pray that our journey forward, we will see more of each other. But he sees all of you. Whatever your suffering is, whatever your fear, whatever your doubts, whatever your sin, whatever your darkness, whatever your insecurities, whatever your hopes, whatever your dreams, whatever your joys, whatever your successes, whatever your failures, whatever it is that you know of yourself or whatever it is that you don't, he sees you fully. And he loves you. And so we are safe 
to ask him to see us more. Not because he needs to see us more because he already does, but he asks questions like, where are you going? Where are you coming from? What do you want? Not so he can see us, but so that we can see that he sees us. So I'm going to give you another little gift because it was a gift given to me in my time of aloneness. There's a song I've been listening to. It's on repeat on my iPhone. So whenever I plug into a car or stick my headphones in, it just starts. And then it just plays over and over again. So I've now listened to it today alone probably 19 times. So probably a thousand times it might be a bit of an exaggeration, but I really don't think so because it's been a couple months. And so <laughs> a lot of times during the day. So what I do now is like literally if I'm not with other humans, I'm listening to the song because I'm going to get to other humans and I'm going to need the song. You know what I'm saying? And so I've been just listening to the song over and over again. And I'm, I'm going to ask the, the team to come now and to sing this song over you, for you. And what I want you to do is I just want you to sit. You're not going to get up. You're not going to sing it. You're not going to sing the words because it's not for you to sing. It's for you to hear. It's for you to receive. It's for you to have. Because in this song, God came to me and said, Renaud, I know where you are. I know how you feel, but I am with you. And when my voice breaks through your noise, it will be all you will need. And so now, it is his voice I listen for and long for in the noise around me. So may this song mean to you a bit of what it has meant to me. And may it be a place that says to you, from God to you, I see. So hear my voice, trust my way, trust me and come closer because I am safe. Listen to this. seem to win all these crazy thoughts and feelings it's like it never ends until your voice breaks through my noise i know i'm not alone not alone you'll find my battles if i would just be still why would i keep running when you're right here, I'll just be quiet And let you speak through the silence Here I am, no more hiding You are in this moment, I won't fight it I'll be quiet I don't need to know what comes next Tomorrow's in your head 
find me there. 